Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. This is going to be a show about lists. Probably I should like do a list right here. That would be kind of meta. But I feel like I don't need a list because we're going to spend so much time talking about them. They, in a way, dominate culture. They dominate humor. But beyond that, they are part of some very, very primitive desire that we have for order. And, and anyway, are all lists really the same thing? Is a to-do list that you might make around the house the same as, I don't know, President Obama's list of the best books he's read all year? Are these the same lists? Somebody should make a list of all the different kinds of lists, except, believe it or not, somebody already has. We'll talk about lists after this list of news. That's a song called uh, To-Do List by the Felice Brothers. Um, It is an interesting kind of cross-pollination of different kinds of lists, right? It's the to-do list that we're all familiar with, but it's also rendered as art, uh, as music. Um, So it's the perfect beginning for today's conversation. We are going to talk about lists in a lot of different ways. Um, And we are going to talk uh, in the second segment to two critics or culture writers about that sort of year-end list phenomenon and other kinds of lists in which kind of critics lay their cards down on the table. Uh, At the end of the show, you will meet a novelist who wrote an entire novel composed entirely of lists called 21 Truths About Love. Uh, but we're going to begin uh, by somebody who can give with somebody who can give us kind of an overview uh, of lists. That would be Liam Young, author of List Cultures, Knowledge and Poetics, from Mesopotamia to BuzzFeed, uh, and an associate professor of communication and media studies at Carleton University. Welcome to our show. Thanks, Colin. Great to be here. Thanks for the invitation. So let's go a little bit with that kind of subtitle, sort of, um, because you, we were mentioning Meso- Mesopotamia, course, uh, I don't know, a list of top two rivers, Tigris and Euphrates. I think that was one of their early lists. Uh, but you, there is actual evidence, right, that, that uh, Babylonian cultures, Sumerian cultures did make something that we would identify as a list? Yeah, absolutely. Um, those are actually the earliest surviving forms of writing that we have are lists. They're just simple grain inventories, transaction lists, just the kind of everyday stuff of 
of uh, of accounting, right? So that's five thousand years ago in the Fertile Crescent, um, and that desire just seemed to arise from this kind of administrative or pragmatic need uh, to just take take an accounting or an ordering of of the world rather than write things down like stories or, or other forms of writing that we tend to think of when we when we imagine the history of writing. And, and am I correct for, uh, in deriving from from what you wrote about that that initially scholars didn't think these were lists; they thought they were just narratives with lacunae in them somehow. In other words, that there were these were probably more full blown narrative thoughts that parts of which had just gotten blotted out. Exactly. Yeah. For a long time, the sort of bias toward stories or toward chronicles kind of conditioned the way that these these fragments were interpreted. And so scholars tend to, yeah, tended to exactly what you said, tended to think of them as as fragments of these chronicles or of these kind of more narrative bits of text. And it wasn't until much later down the line in the 20th century that anthropologists started to kind of uh, get a feel for the fact that maybe these were operating in a fundamentally different way. So it really actually opens up this this interesting kind of gap right in in this massive history in which we tend to kind of or we tended until relatively recently to think of the history of writing along of this kind of this kind of binary right so on the one hand you have uh, stories narratives and on the other hand you have scholarly or or scientific forms of writing when in reality the vast majority of writing that's happened in the world by humans has been administrative right just kind of boring banal day-to-day uh accounting of 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 life and and transactions and these types of things but probably born out of a common desire to impose order on chaos, or at least the appearance of order on uh, on chaos. And maybe we could start there a little bit too. And just from your mm-hmm. point of view, are, are do all lists have some kind of identifiable common denominator? In other words, uh, a list of the top ten movies of last year by A. O. Scott, uh, a list of fifteen famous people from history who died of tuberculosis, my to-do list of just stuff I need to get around that done around the house on Saturday. Are those? Do they all pray to the same God and howl at the same moon? <laughs> I mean, that's a great question. I mean, I I think in some way yes. Like in some way. There is something about the way this form allows us to inscribe a certain kind of order, right? And there is, I'm not a psychologist, but there's obviously a kind of uh, a, a psychologically soothing aspect of this, right? Where we're faced with an unruly, unordered, chaotic world. And so we're kind of grasping uh, for any tools that we can find around us in order to kind of make sense of it or in order to control the, the chaos, right? To kind of stem the tide. And so the list has been this thing that we've used for for eons to do that kind of work, right? So, I mean, I I I do think that that kind of essence is at is at the heart of it, right? And the scholar and and novelist Umberto Eco had a really nice way of putting this, where he he says the power of the list and the reason that he called it the kind of origin of culture is that it negotiates this tension between everything included and etc. So between the kind of pleasure of order versus the unruliness of of chaos. And and lists are always operating, I think, uh, at the site of that tension. We should say that's from La Vertigine de la Lista, uh, his, uh, The Infinity of Lists, in which mm-hmm. he's got a whole bunch of lists there, including uh, Hesiod's List of the Progeny of the Gods and uh, perhaps everybody's favorite, Rebelez's List of Bottom Wipes. Um, <laughs> But so, but he, but the, so that gets into another question, which is there mm-hmm. is a way in which 
um, lists start to, if they're done properly, if there are a certain kind of lists, they do have a poetics, right? They do have some way in which they become literature. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's what's interested so many of our great writers and thinkers over the years with this form, right? Like they identify within this form um, a, a certain kind of power and a certain kind of poetics, right? Where a list is so interesting precisely because it seems to subvert the very borders that we might otherwise think it is erecting. So the kind of logic of inclusion and exclusion is like worn on the on the sleeve of every list. Like we can see the border, right? We understand implicitly that some things have been included in this list and other things have been excluded. And so in that kind of poetics, you see so many uh, so many writers echo lists, you know, too many of them for us to 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 account for. But someone like Jorge Luis Borges loved lists. Right. And he would constantly be trying to show us the way that uh, these logics of classification that we kind of take for granted in everyday life are the are fundamentally the product of of history. Right. The, that knowledge is always imprinted by the historical moment in which in which it exists or in which we exist. And so he has this really famous list of of animals that he says comes from this fictional ancient text, um, which totally defies modern or conventional modes of classification. Right. So he de it divides animals into the, the following categories belonging to the emperor, embalmed, tame, suckling pigs, sirens, fabulous, stray dogs, included in the present classification, frenzied, innumerable, drawn with a fair, very fine camel hair brush, etc., having just broken the water pitcher that from a long way off looked like flies. So you see there's this like immediate um, invitation to us to like question the fact that we can't make sense of this. Like our modern mode of reasoning will not kind of allow us to 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 grapple with the the bizarre kind of system that that is uh that is operating within this list so that's a, just one example i think of this of this poetics and the way that that a thinker kind of makes use of it in order to like invite the reader to imagine a different set of possibilities than they are used to imagining Right. So increasingly within popular culture and particularly within the world of magazine writing, um, lists became a way of, uh, I think, sort of packaging ideas up so that people felt that they could consume them rather quickly. There's something implicitly finite about a list. It has to be over at some point. Uh, if there's if you know there's 10, then, you know, it's going to be over after nine lists going in reverse. Uh, and in 1985, mm -hmm. Uh, a television Dadaist came along to sort of call attention uh, to the insanity of all of this. Uh, here is David Letterman's first ever top 10 list, <laughs> September 18th, 1985. We're going to start our own top 10 list. And tonight, I think we got a pretty good one. Tonight <clears throat> will be uh, late night's top 10 words that almost rhyme with peas. Okay. Number 10, we have heats. Number nine is rice. Number eight is moss. Number seven, we have ties. Well, it was, you, Wait, it was a little late. What, what happened? We were going to score this whole thing for you. This was you, a little but... drum roll. Yeah. Where, now I lost my place. Where were we? Oh, number seven is ties. Number, number six is needs. Number five is lens. Number four is ice. Number three is kind of a surprise, nurse. Number two, we're getting very close now, is leaks. 
And the number one word that almost rhymes with peas, according to our poll, is meats. So with that, a genre was launched, not just on Letterman. I mean, it became a staple, of course, of every night's show. But I think it was launched even on a broader basis than that. McSweeney's, for example, has a whole you know category of lists uh, that humor writers just you know, the, the entire piece is a list. And, and so we've sort of been hinting at this already, Liam, but there's a way in which a list has a utilitarian value or an informational value, but increasingly we are, whether it's Borges or David Letterman, looking at people trying to make it be art all by itself. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. And uh, this seems to be one of the things that like has launched the list into this like whole new era in digital culture. Like there's just so much interesting play with the form in online cultures. And I think a lot of it is, is, is influenced by the these historical moments you're talking you're talking to and people like Letterman, right? I mean, that 1980s moment was so interesting because you have this proliferation of all of these um like specialty cable channels like MTV and VH1, uh, Entertainment Tonight and all these things, which were looking for like morsels of content, right? And the list was this like economical thing that worked really well in that format. And then as soon as you have like the dominant culture doing that kind of work, always the artists and the music musicians and the poets uh, look to kind of explore, explore the boundaries of it, right. And push it into different directions. Um, and so like one of my favorite examples from uh, of like of play and digital culture is this, this thing that, that circulates every few months of a piece of graffiti uh, that's, you know, was, is sort of taken, it's authorless, right? It's just taken from a wall somewhere. And it's like, the list is three, just three items of things I hate. One, graffiti. Two, irony. Three, lists. And so that, you know, and like that's become a meme in digital culture. So you have all of these different media environments kind of um, converging on this, on this one form and on this one little image right that that circulates in all kinds of interesting ways so uh yeah it's uh the, it, and this was kind of part of what originally got me interested in this was like wondering is there something essential about this moment of digital culture right like are we more prone to listing than in previous historical moments or or what is it about these online environments that sort of lends lend themselves toward these practices of listing so yeah right so you know if we were to sort of go back to the old idea of memes and memetics, um, that notion that information kind of, quote unquote, wants to be reproduced, wants to be shared the way that a gene might. Richard Dawkins is the first person who talks about the idea of a meme in that way. So a, a list has certain evolutionary advantages if you if you're if we're going to pursue that analogy. Um, it, it, first of all, it looks transportable, right? It's not twelve paragraphs; it's ten items or eight items or something. It's numbered. There's a compactness to it. There's a sense of order. There's the illusion of discreteness that one idea is very different from the other. Things are going to ble bleed. So I'm I'm wondering about that too. I mean, an era in which um, sharing of information 
which is really kind of transporting or transferring information to other venues and other people, uh, is, first of all, going on at an unprecedented pace uh, and also a way that you sort of win some kind of putative game. I'm wondering if that has something to do with the, the, the emergence of, I mean, you know, as you devote a chapter uh, to BuzzFeed and, and, and other um, platforms of that kind, you know, 17 pictures from Japan that will make you say that is smart. <laughs> that doesn't even <laughs> seem like a very workable list. That's an actual BuzzFeed listicle. Uh, mm-hmm. but, but there's the illusion anyway that you could share that with somebody else. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think I just think that the the barrier to entry of the list form is so is quite low, right? Like it it um, it invites engagement in a way that is commensurate with the way that we engage with our screens, which is to scan and scroll and swipe. Uh, and so so there is. Yeah, I, I do think that there is something kind of um, uh, they, they work kind of hand in glove in the in with the rhythms by which we consume information now. Um, and so BuzzFeed was one of the one of the largest platforms to kind of seize on this, though certainly not the only one or not the first one. But um, I think that that company really read the culture in an interesting way, particularly like the early days of um, like Web 2.0 or the kind of social media boom, right? Where in those days it was that's what you shared on Facebook, right? It was like 25 things about me. Uh, and so there was this like really interesting kind of um, uh, fan culture almost that was like like or, or online folk culture, right? Where people were kind of um, communicating elements of their narrative lives or of their identity through the list form and and the kind of pleasure of it as you're describing, right? The fact that it has a border, the fact that it has an uh, an endpoint or most have an endpoint, it's numbered. It's kind of familiar in so many ways, but you can make it your own. You can spin it out in different ways. You can surprise people. Um, and 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 there's a kind of rhythm to a list, right? That is a that is inherently pleasurable that that readers and sharers and likers just seem to gravitate to. You know, beyond the pleasure, there's sort of a power dynamic too. One of my favorite discoveries from your book, first, first of all, I love the discovery of any long, cumbersome German word. So we have Listenwissenschaft, Listenwissenschaft, uh, which is the science of lists uh, and, and uh, underpinning or perhaps energizing uh, Listenwissenschaft and energizing um, uh, lists in general is oh, Ordnungswill, I may not be saying it wrong, but it's the will to order. And so mm-hmm. there's a way in which, I mean, the will to order could just be organizing information so everybody can look at it and have essentially the same experience. But there's kind of a dark side to that too, right? There's sort of kicking ass and taking names. Uh, mm-hmm. And, and, and when, you're, when you're making lists and you explore this in one of the chapters, you, are, you can be using that to assert a kind of order and power over an environment. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, the the kind of will to order, right, is a is a part of the story of modernity uh, in particular, where uh, human cultures, human civilizations increasingly, especially Western civilizations, increasingly sought to kind of inscribe their way of viewing the world onto the world. Right. Um, and so the list is one of the earliest power technologies. Right. If the maybe the finger that points is the earliest, but the list is not far behind. And so anytime, you know, you have certain communities of people drawing a border, defining criteria for inclusion versus exclusion, that has massive stakes, right? So when we're talking about uh, lists of people, uh, citizenship lists, 
deportation lists, most wanted lists, terrorist lists, no-fly lists. Um, the stakes are really, really high. Uh, you, you know, who who is in a position to kind of define the criteria uh, and who is excluded from that criteria? So this is a yeah, as you say, a kind of darker element or a darker underside to the history of modernity and so many kind of. Um, movements that have progress or have rationality or have order uh, at the center of their ideology have made use of this of this technology in order to kind of uh, exert power over the world. Um, so that's a piece of it. But then it's also important, I think, to 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 highlight that um, uh, movements of resistance have have equally made use of the list. Right. So one of my favorite examples is is Frederick Engels, who wrote this massive work about the working class in England. And he used uh, the same techniques, right, of of gathering statistical data about populations in order to convey a different message, right, in order to show forms of exploitation, in order to develop a language for the working class, for uh, the bourgeois kind of intelligentsia to understand the forms of exploitation that were occurring. So it's just, it's one of those hinge points, right? Or one of it's one of those sites in which we can see this form that we totally take for granted and think of as super banal and boring is actually operating within the sphere of of power and and uh, social dynamics. Right. And, and another aspect of this, I mean, obviously, most wanted lists uh, and no fly lists are lists you typically want to stay off of. There are lists also that designate the elite, right? I mean, this will be a nice segue to our next segment, which involves critics and culture writers. But, you know, you're standing at the stage door and there's a guy standing there saying, nope, you're not on the list. There's those kinds of lists, people who can get to certain places, blue book kind of lists of you know regist- registries of social elites in various cultures. Uh, there's lots of ways that or just a visitor's list at a hospital for that matter. There's li- mm-hmm. there's ways in which lists include as well as exclude. Right. They designate certain people uh, as having mm-hmm. a different kind of status. Yeah, exactly. They are they are a site in which categories emerge, right? So a category uh, of of personhood or a category of culture like popular or or great or most important or whatever, like that category emerges through the technique or through the act of listing. Um, and so as much as they are constantly trying to inscribe that type of order, what I really love about thinking about lists is the way that um, they invite us immediately to question that logic, right? Like nobody ever takes a ranked list of best songs of all time for granted. They almost demand that we disagree and that we mount a counter argument or, or develop a counter list. Right. And that's a perfect segue to where we're going now, because in fact, yes, lists are sort of the handball wall that you bounce the ball off of uh, and and begin to define your own positions uh, against at times. We've been talking to Liam Young, uh, author of List Cultures, Knowledge and Poetics from Mesopotamia to BuzzFeed and an associate professor of communication and media studies at Carleton University. Thank you for your time, Liam Young. We'll take a break. We'll come back with uh, two terrific writers about culture. No, you're not. Yes, I am. No, you're not. Yes, I am. No, you're not. Yes, I am. Yes, I am. I can chew the partridge with a single cartridge. I can get a sparrow with a bow and arrow. I can live on bread and cheese. And only on that. Yep. Sucking a rat. Any note you can sing, I can sing higher. I can sing any note higher than you. No, you can't. Yes, I Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. 
ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. Raindrops on roses and whiskers on kittens, bright copper kettles and warm woolen mittens, brown paper packages tied up with strings, these are a few of my favorite things. Cream-colored ponies... I would not have thought of this particular song uh, as a, a list, but it absolutely is. All right, joining us to talk about lists and culture, uh, Dan Coyce, uh, editor and writer at Slate, where he recently wrote the list, The 50 Greatest Fictional Deaths of All Time. I should say about that list that we have brought it up twice with our panelists on the, our Friday episode, The Nose, and, and everybody chickened out both times uh, for reasons we might even get into. Here's novel, Vintage Contemporaries, comes out in January. Uh, as long as I'm introducing you, Dan, I just want to say that also you're Rod McEwen thing on Decoder Ring. I, I, the ultimate compliment, I think, is why didn't I think of that? Why couldn't? Why don't? Why is he doing that show? I want to be doing that show. It was just, just brilliant. Uh, and then we started uh, talking about having a rock critic on, a music critic on, and I said to Lily Tyson, "Well, why don't we shoot for the moon? Why don't we ask for Ann Powers? Make her say no." <laughs> and she said yes. Uh, NPR's music critic and correspondent Ann Powers is with us. So, Dan, you've written not only. Uh, uh, intimidating lists like the, the the fictional death list, but you've also written kind of odes to the list, and maybe we should begin there. You, there are people who reject list list culture if there is such a thing. You are not one of them. Oh, absolutely not. I mean, every year at the end of the year, when every critic has to make her top ten list of movies or songs or whatever, there are always a certain number of critics who begin with an apology. I can't believe that I'm doing this, ranking these apples to these oranges. Uh, whereas I find list making one of the most fun aspects of the life of a critic and someone who writes about culture. It's a thing I have loved doing since I was a kid, and I find it not only fun, but valuable for writers and for readers. So I, I've long been a defender. I'm delighted to be on with Anne, one of our, one of the culture's great list makers. <laughs> she is indeed. Although Anne, in a way, there's another kind of list that begins to dictate a certain set of futures and outcomes for music. Music, popular music is not ruled, but sort of tenuously governed by things like the Billboard Hot 100, right? There's a way in which somebody else who's not a critic is trying to assess public enthusiasm through through sales figures. Absolutely. I mean, popular music lists intertwine, you know, the commercial, the critical, uh, the historical. And it's funny, Dan, that you should say what you've said, because 
I am that person who has written the phrase, I hate lists <laughs> so many times. <laughs> so Over sad. The many decades I've been doing lists. I, I struggle with lists, but I think that's what makes uh makes it important, the process. You know, if you if you struggle through it, you're you're creating a canon. That's a fancy word for a list, but uh, especially now, interventions in that canon are are so important as our view of popular mus music history. Um, changes and and you know what's popular and what critics like is only sometimes the same thing. So we have to negotiate that. And I think the nice thing about a list, though, is it does offer a multiplicity. So every year, I should tell you, we do an episode every single year where it's usually, I think, in early June, we try to pin down with a panel of experts what is going to be the song of the summer. The theory, as you know, being that there will be one song to rule them all, one song to bind them in a given summer. And and it's a very fraught exercise. <laughs> we often wind up no, disagreeing totally. quite a bit. But, I mean, the problem is you have to come up with one. You can't come up with 10 songs of the summer. The good thing about a list of 10 or, or, or any number, really, Anne, is it does allow you to include multiple possibilities, uh, the possibility that a jazz album uh, belongs in the same, you know, the same praise list as a grunge rock album. Absolutely. When in 2017, I um, I helmed with some other people this this project called Turning the Tables. We did a list of 150 greatest albums by women of the album era, which we dated from the 60s to the present. And you know, we started with 100, but we just couldn't, we couldn't, we couldn't stop. And so we ended up with 150. But that's partly like my generous slash indecisive nature. I'm I'm curious to hear from either of you if you think a list is better if it's only eight or ten or fifteen as opposed to a hundred or two hundred. Yeah. I sort of think the more the merrier, in part because the variety is what makes a list so fun. And I, I mean, I even have theories about the kinds of things that ought to appear in certain places on a top 10 list. Hmm. You know, number number one is where you put the, yes, of course, the best thing, but it better not be the most obvious best thing that everyone else thinks is number one. That's what you put at number two. Uh, <laughs> number nine is, of course, where you put your wild card, the thing, the thing on the list that's going to make people laugh as soon as they hmm. see it. It's where, you know, you put the Judd Apatow comedy on your best movies list or, uh, or um, you know, of an extremely dumb pop song on your best songs list. Right. I, I love you know, it. I read that in your article, Dan, and I, I know a number of critics who have to make these lists, and I guarantee you they are not scheming it out the way that you're, you're describing. I mean, maybe They're some missing of them a do. golden opportunity for fun. Yeah. I totally. I love the aesthetics of lists. I mean, for myself, I try to be creative. One year I did a list that was like, these were lists I listened to on particular long drives. I was living in Alabama and often going to Nashville and I would have these long drives. And, and so it was like, well, on this day, I listened to this music. So, you know, playing with the list form is one of the great pleasures of the form. Oh, so now we're talking a little bit more about playlists, and and I think that is mm -hmm. a really interesting category too. One of the things that I do is I make playlists. Uh, I use Title as my streaming service because I'm very worried that the Carter family is going to run out of money, so I, I try to help out. <laughs> but um, the um, and what I'll do is I'll, I'll hear kind of an interesting song and I'll just throw it on one of the playlists, which means that I you know might have a playlist with a hundred different songs on it, and I don't really know them. <laughs> and then as you're listening to them, you think. Who is that? Who's singing right now, right now? And it is an interesting way. But therein, you really are usually, I think, with a playlist, particularly if you're driving some long distance, you're kind of going a little bit for randomness, right? It's, you know, you might even be playing it on shuffle anyway. 
A playlist can be so many things. It can be a conversation among people. Often I'll create a playlist and I'll sort of crowdsource it through my social media friends. You know, I recently did one called Wrecked and it was songs that wreck you, you know, that just you can't <laughs> help but break down. And man, that list was, it went everywhere, you know, but a, a playlist can also be algorithmically created and there's a lot of debate over this. Is this taking away our agency because some, uh, you know, some IA is is directing us towards something we didn't necessarily expect? And that's different than radio playlists, where there is, at least we think, a human behind the list. Yeah. there's a, There are a lot of people who are still making playlists that, that fit the format of the old school mixtape or mix CD, where there's a certain ethos you're going for and the play order matters. Um, yes. historically or emotionally or aesthetically. I think of someone like, you know, Matthew Perpetua at Fluxblog, who's creating these incredible series of historical lists, um, giving you the kind of history of, say, the talking heads from beginning to end that also includes all their influences and all the songs that members played on during those times. Um, and those are essentially historical documents or canon builders in the form of a playlist that you can listen to. Right. Although I also think of the end of High Fidelity, where John Cusack's character explains how he makes a playlist. And he uses them kind of seductively as a way of introducing himself maybe to a new woman in his life. And, and, and there's sort of that, too, right? If you are what you like, then a playlist may be you trying to say who you are. Our, so is your top our, 10 list. Yeah. Our friend Rob Sheffield read a wonderful book, his first book called Love is a Mixtape. That's all about that. I I highly recommend it to people. There was something about mixtapes that felt particularly intimate because you could, you know, draw felt pen art on the cover. You could illustrate it a certain way. And I know for myself, I'd be curious if this happened for either of you, I, whole worlds opened up to me through mixtapes. You know, some of my favorite artists, Nick Drake, I'd never heard of until um, someone I was dating when I was like 20 gave that, you know, gave me some music of his on the mixtape. So that, it's a very intimate act, that kind of list. It seems very different than a Spotify list, but then I don't know, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe you can be intimate through the <laughs> through the corporate behemoth platforms as well. well then, I, mean, I would argue you can even be intimate through the published list, you know, the journalistic yes. list that we started out talking about. It's, it's certainly for me as a critic and uh, someone who, for whom art matters, it's, it is a kind of statement of personal beliefs and aesthetic as, you know, that ranking and the things I choose to include and the statements I'm trying to make are about me and what I care about. And so it's going out to the world, but it also reflects something really personal. Okay. Based on where we are in the conversation, I got to ask you both about this. There's a guy who recently got into the whole list making, cultural list making thing. And I think he's really good at it. He lives in Illinois, some of the time, Martha's been Obama, I think is his name. Uh, so, I mean, Obama is Very. like, he is a list monster, right? I mean, he does literary lists, he does song lists, he does movie lists. He, do, I mean, you know, he's, he's a cultural omnivore. And these lists are, I think, and maybe another example of somebody saying, yeah, this is who I am. This is stuff I like. I don't know what the process is behind um, Barry Obama's uh, now uh, famous lists. And I, I do know that I do know musicians who've made those lists and boy, have they been thrilled when they do. <laughs> uh, it's always curious. You know, I'm always curious. Is there like a, a younger staffer feeding Obama? Two here? daughters, you know, two daughters, daughters. Yeah. But but I have to say, like when you think about the public image of Barack Obama, I think he could have been a clerk 
in High Fidelity. I think it would have been a better book and a better movie if Barry Obama had been one of the characters. Reboot. Oh. Those let's seem ruthlessly focus group to me. I don't know. I'm very dubious. You're probably right. I'm sure you're right. So, Dan, I want to talk about a specific limb that you go out on, and that is making a list where, well, the the fictional deaths is a great example. So you've got a list that has Medea and Pac-Man. You know, you're you're exploring uh, whether or not you can kind of elicit certain kinds of commonalities among really kind of different disciplines, different genres. Talk about why you did that and maybe like what the reaction was to it. Uh, I just find that particular move on the part of an artist really interesting. It's always a big step in a novel or in a movie or a song or whatever art form to kill off a character. It matters for plot. It matters for the emotion of the viewer or reader, and you can do it so well or so, so badly. Um, And it, it seemed to me interesting to explore the different things a death scene can do uh, and the different ways it can affect you. Some of them, you know, of course, are very moving or touching or satisfying. Some of them are, are stupid, intentionally so, or silly. Um, and, and and that kind of unifying idea that crosses all these different media is a great way to think about how art works and why it works the way that it does. And so when we published it, we it had the exact result I hoped for, which is that it made people think and talk about how death works in art. And it also made them furiously angry with us, yelling at me about all the ones we forgot. Yeah. Well that's that's another part of the list, right? It is it's the wall that you're you're bouncing your own balls off of so that when we read the list, we go, oh, no, 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 you know, uh, and we start a whole different set of conversations. I also find it a lot of fun uh, every year to read uh, A.O. Scott and Manola Dargis do their respective end of the year list because I'm thinking, oh, how much overlap is there going to be? You know, are Tony and Manola having big arguments around the office about this? Uh, so different critics doing their lists uh, is also kind of exciting. Um, but that's – yeah, go yeah. ahead. I was just going to say that that's uh, that it's sort of the the shining star for a critic, like the 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 badge on their jacket or whatever, right? Is like, do people take their lists seriously? I remember back in the day, I knew people who uh, would take Robert Criscow's Consumer Guide from the Village Voice, like rip <laughs> it out of the Voice every week and run to St. Mark's Records or you know a record store in in downtown New York and just buy everything, all the A's and and. You can get a little drunk with power if you think of people using your lists that way. <laughs> I mean, that is essentially how I discovered music in the in my teenage years and in my twenties was by looking at Paz and Jop every year, the Village Voices critics poll, which to a you know a kid growing up in Wisconsin was often the the first and only encounter I was going to have with many of these titles, and that right. is that's a list. It's cr- crowdsourced in a way through critics but it represents this sort of critical establishment's view of the year in music. And that was a huge discovery mechanism for me. That was how I developed my musical taste. You know, um, and rock music is at least implicitly Dionysian as opposed to Apollonian. Making lists is kind of Apollonian. Uh, and, and 
and I'm especially interested for you as a critic because there's another kind of list, a music list we're not we haven't talked about so far, and that is the band's own list, the mm. set list. Now there are some bands that in the green room every night decide what tonight's set list is going to be. There are other acts that are traveling around the country, and they're not going to play the songs in any different order in Milwaukee than they did in Indianapolis. Uh, and and there are bands, you know, total chaos Muppet bands um, that you know I'm sure Fish has never had a, a set list. <laughs> I'm just assuming they don't have any idea when they walk on stage what's about to happen. It might be true for the Grateful Dead as well, at least during certain periods. Maybe you as a critic can talk a little bit about that. I mean, there's a way in which we want our rock rock and rollers to be spontaneous, but I'm not sure all of them are. I think set lists are a way of organizing time. And also every list is a, tells a story. Right? That's a cliched thing to say. But And so given the limited amount of time an artist has with an, a live audience, they have to tell the story of where they're at musically through the set list. I saw this great band I love the other night called Fontaine's DC. They're an Irish band. They've, you know, real, real punk, but they've kind of gotten into a different sound recently. And I loved how they structured their set list because they started with some of the new stuff, which is real stretch out kind of music. And then right in the middle, they just built to this like total mosh pit fervor. And then they pulled back and they went back to the other kind of, there was a lot of art in that, you know, it, it tells a story, it organizes time, it organizes the energy in a room. And I think that is what a great set list does. All right. Well, it's been so much fun. I'm a big fan of both of you, so it's really fun. To, and you guys are great together, too. It's been so much to, uh, fun to talk to you. Dan Coyce, editor and writer at Slate, where he wrote the list, The 50 Greatest Fictional Deaths of All Time. There's still time to get mad at Dan. So, yeah, I mean, you can find the list, and then you can get mad at Dan. You're a little behind you the You can curve. do it forever. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> be there forever. His novel, Vintage Contemporaries, comes out in January. And Powers is NPR's music critic and correspondent. Thanks to both of you. We're going to end this show uh, after the break with um, a writer who wrote a novel that was entirely based on lists. You're the tap You're the Louvre Museum You're the melody from a symphony by Strauss You're a Bendel Bonnet a Shakespeare sonnet You're a Mickey Mouse You're the Nile You're the Tower of All right, we're back. Here's a list uh, of the people who worked on today's show. Uh, it's kind of the usual list, but it's a good list. Cat Pastor's our technical producer. Uh, Lily Tyson is the senior producer of The Colin McEnroe Show and producer of this episode. That's the end of the list. Uh, we're going to talk uh, here at the end with a, an author. Uh, and we might add champion monologist uh, Matthew Dix. Uh, his book is 21 Truths About Love. Uh, it is a novel uh, that involves a couple, uh, a man named Dan and his wife Jill. It involves a pregnancy. It involves a dead ex. It involves a bookstore. It involves lots of other things. But, you know, the fact that it involves a pregnancy is kind of interesting because pregnancies kind of feel like lists almost. And it made me think of my favorite list article ever, which I'm going to read a little piece of before we get to to Matt, but um, it's by Roy Blunt Jr., one of my favorite writers. It was written in 1983. It was called The List of the Mohicans, and it's about uh, exactly what we're talking about today. Uh, but he concludes, he ends, remember, back even further, frankly, to the womb, how your day developed. It was all very structured, very symmetrical, but none of this by the numbers. You'd be reflecting, hmm, 
and I've got a heartbeat, and I'm not going to be a fish. But it wasn't one, hmm, two, I've got a heartbeat, three, I'm, go- I'm not going to be a fish. It was dawnings overlapping. You didn't know what you were going to be. Even if you had known, it wasn't anything you'd ever seen. But you could sense the thread, and it wasn't linear. It was more like the thread on a screw, something that turned to go forward. Um, so joining us now, and that's an appropriate introduction, I think, for this book, 21 <laughs> Truths About Love, uh, Matthew Dix. So first of all, Matthew, uh, or Matt, or Maddie, or whatever, I should say, <laughs> you, once upon a time, you were in a class that I taught, and nonetheless, you've become incredibly successful. Um, <laughs> and, and so I'm happy about all that. You know, this really is the perfect book of, to end with, because it really is about a man trying to impose order on a very chaotic environment that involves all of the things that I just said, plus a dad he's out of touch with. There's all these things. And he's thinking, I think, if I can just get these numbered lists together, I can make this whole thing make sense and maybe get an outcome I wouldn't otherwise get. Is that, that a fair characterization of what's going on? Yeah. He's, um, you know, he was sort of advised by his therapist initially to sort of start making some lists to bring order to his life. And it became, I guess, an obsession for him, a way to keep track of the way he moves through the world. So some of the lists are the kind of list that anybody would make. They're like income versus expenses. Uh, like, you know, how are we, we going to keep things afloat here? Some of the lists are very specific to phone calls that he's recently gotten or some kind of personal dilemma that he's facing. And some of them have almost a kind of a Letterman feel to them. They are, you know, anal- I mean, for example, there's one other poorly named foods in addition to Chilean sea bass, corned beef, pulled pork, bread pudding, noodle pudding, field greens, blood orange, poo-poo platter. I mean, that's almost got a kind of a Letterman quality to it. So I'm wondering about the writing about this. I, it feels like it was a fun book to write if writing could ever be fun. Yeah, it really wasn't a book to begin with. It was honestly me writing lists so I could make people laugh in meetings that I found not entirely entertaining. And over the course of time, they just sort of started piling up. And then one day it occurred to me, I had written a list that I didn't actually believe fundamentally came from me. It was a list that was interesting, but it wasn't something that I would ever say myself. And that's the moment when I realized, oh, there's a fictional character at work here. And that eventually became the book. I like the implication that there are meetings which are entertaining. Um, well, in the perfect world, perhaps. Right. And we should say that there is a list about meetings, uh, rules of meetings that leaders never understand. It starts, the shorter a meeting is always the best meeting. Ending on time means you're not highly effective, just average. Ending late <laughs> means you suck at life, on and on like that. So, And I feel like... You know, probably school faculty meetings are especially stultifying. I'm guessing you maybe started thinking about that list in a specific meeting. Those were the first lists that came out was sort of here is why we are suffering. And I would pass that list around the table and it would make people laugh. And whenever you can make someone laugh in a meeting, you repeat that as often as you can. So that's what I was sort of doing. So I want to circle back to what you said before, that that at a certain point there was a list that didn't seem to come specifically from you. Obviously, this is what a fiction writer is looking for in general, is at some point characters who seem to be operating out of their own volition in a way that the author doesn't feel is consciously planned. Um, So could you say a little bit more about that? I mean, it seems almost mystical uh, that there was suddenly a a mystical listicle that uh, didn't come from you. That's good. Mysticalistical. Yeah, it was. I remember it was a list that was very representative of a person who was underconfident. And I am, you know, overly confident, my wife would tell you. So (laughs) the fact that like a list came out and it was sort of someone who was complaining about things I don't typically complain about. And 
dealing with problems that I don't typically see as problems. And as it went around the room, I remember I had a friend who looked across at me. She pointed at the list and then pointed at me and sort of furrowed her eyebrow. And that was the moment when I realized, yeah, you're right. That's not actually me. That is representative of someone who's sort of taken root in my head. And very quickly, I understood that that person was in a lot of ways, sort of the opposite of me, someone who struggled with things that I tend not to struggle with. And you know, saw the world in a way that I never really see the world. And then I knew I had found somebody interesting to play with. So I think if somebody uh, pulls the book off of a shelf of an independent bookstore, not unlike the one that the characters own, um, there's a way, there's something friendly about lists, right? I mean, it's funny that Umberto Eco wrote an entire book about lists, because if you pull the name of the rose off the shelf and start thumbing through it, you just think, I'm not going to be able to do this. This is just not going to be something <laughs> I can I can tackle. I mean, there's something about lists that look implicitly tackleable, right? Yeah, I love them because well, you don't necessarily need to read them in order. You really can start at the bottom and work your way up. And I always think a list is sort of inviting another item to the list. I always feel like they're sort of incomplete. They're they're asking for you to contribute in some way or to contribute in disagreeing. Like number four is not true, but I like all the rest. So I think it invites people to become part of the process when we look at a list. But I think there's also, I, I totally agree with what you just said, but there's kind of um, the flip side of that is that there's an explicit promise that the list is making, that there is a beginning and an end, right? This is not, you know, the, the chapters in Moby Dick about whaling. Uh, <laughs> this is, you can see there's there's a one and there's a 10 or there's, you know, and, and so, you know, there, there's a comfort to that. You're thinking, all right, it's kind of like what you're saying about meetings. There, somebody has a plan to get to the end of this particular thing. Yeah. And, you know, when you title the lists, it's sort of you're offering a promise and it doesn't take long to either fulfill that promise or, you know, fail in fulfilling that promise. But it really does lend itself to the idea that I can get through this very quickly and they're deeply satisfying. I mean, you can read a chapter of a book that's 17 pages long and finish and think, well, that wasn't very good. But, you know, if you run into a list that you don't especially appreciate, you're done in 30 seconds and you're on to the next one. So there, there is that appeal to them, I think. And sometimes the title of the list is better than the list, or at least, I mean, McSweeney's now has gone heavily into lists. And I, I pulled up one today that's a list of James Bond quotes, if he were a Karen. Um, <laughs> And so like the first yes. one is the name's Bond, James Bond, not Jim Bond, not Jamie Bond, James Bond. <laughs> Do you need me to spell that out for you? Um, but yeah, there's a way in which the, the title of the list is kind of a, a nice promise to us. Yeah, it's similar to an Onion article that the title of an Onion article yes. is often all you need to read. And so sometimes a list can be like that as well. So um, what kind of list maker have you, first of all, did writing the book make you even more of an inveterate list maker? Not really. To be honest with you, I'm not much of a list maker unless I'm trying to be amusing. I'm not sort of a to-do list maker. You know, I keep everything in my head. My wife never understands how I manage to do that. But unless I'm writing a list thinking this is a funny list or this is going to be insightful in a way that people haven't noticed the world, I tend not to be a list maker. It was. It really is only when I'm trying to sort of bring a smile to someone's face or show someone, at, you know, a corner of the world that they haven't seen yet that I'm you know, inclined to write one of those. But you do, I believe, sort of keep some kind of record on your phone of moments of the day to note. That's Is that true. not a list? It's a good point. Actually, I stand corrected. I keep a ton of lists. <laughs> I, I guess I don't keep to-do lists, those traditional lists, yeah. but I have lists sort of like I call it moments of note, which is throughout the year, whenever I or anyone in my family do something interesting or notable or we go somewhere, 
I make a note of it because we sort of live our lives forgetting what last mm-hmm. week was. And so we get to, to the end of the year and we often look back and think, you know, where did that year go? But I, every single day, sit down and say, did something happen today that was even slightly meaningful? And at the end of the year, when I read that list to my family, it's one of our favorite things to sort of relive the year and think, oh, God, right. I had forgotten most of the That's things right. that were included on my list. Killed so a dr- I, you are yes, right. right. Killed a drifter in Abilene, Texas. I had totally shut that out of my mind. Um, all right. The, <laughs> the book is so much fun. And it really is. There's something incredibly endearing and touching about the about Dan's project uh, in this book, 21 Truths About Love. The author is Matthew Dix. Uh, and thanks so much for joining us today, sir. Thank you very much, Colin. Good to all talk right. to you. Good to hear your voice again. Uh, we will say goodbye now. Uh, but make a list of everything you liked about the show and send it to Lily Tyson. That's L. Tyson at ctpublic.org.